Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am coming to you today from New York City, New York. In Washington, D.C., we have Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. We Hello, have, David. Hi, Rosa. We have Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hello, and, David. And we have Julie Smith, uh, who is formerly of CNAS and is soon to be of the Bosch Center in Berlin, Germany, which sounds like a pretty cool gig. Guten Tag. <laughs> oh, see, now that adds just the right kind of cosmopolitan flavor um, to speak about Trump's father, who he alleged was from Germany today. Right. Um, forgetting, of course, that he really meant his grandfather. Um, but let's not talk about them for a second. Let's talk about the NATO summit. Let's just go around the group and see how you think that went. Julie, how'd it go? Uh, it was worse than I thought. Um, I went in with pretty low expectations given what happened at the G7. I think we all expected, even the Europeans, expected Trump to rail on them about defense spending. Um, but I think they did not expect it to be, they did not expect to be starring in some sort of reality TV show where Trump created this kind of crisis at the 11th hour that went to an emergency meeting. Then it was solved thanks to the stable genius and leadership of our president. Uh, and then everything is fine. No problem is the quote at the end of the day. And the allies are left seething. And a lot of the feedback I've gotten from folks who are over there, including from a few foreign ministers is we're fed up with this game. We don't like being played like this. We don't like him coming out and lying about what was agreed in these meetings. We did not agree to go over the 2% target of NATO defense spending. Um, so while he thinks he left everybody in sweetness and light, and it's all been resolved thanks to his leadership, um, what he left behind was just um, a group of allies in complete despair, many of them, not every single one of them, but many of them um, really wondering how they're going to get through future engagements if they're all going to go like this. So, I, you know, again, the, the bar was pretty low, but I think even for Trump, he, he uh, surprised some of us with how ridiculous it, it got at the end. And then this press conference was just a... Uh, Breathtaking is probably uh, the word that comes to mind um, for me in terms of the amount of misinformation. Um, and uh, I don't know where we go from here. Um, and I think many of the allies are just trying to figure out at this point what's next. I mean, Macron was the first one out of the gates to say that's not correct. What he's saying actually not did not happen. Uh, we're going to stick to the plan we outlined in 2014, end of story. Everyone else is kind of on the sidelines, whispering on the margins, trying to figure out how to game it out. You know, if you challenge Trump too much, you're going to get beat up and... If you don't, you let this false narrative kind of continue or this blatant lie continue. So, yeah, it's it's a mess. I, I, you, have you ever in your life sent a text to any friends or somebody you're romantically involved with in which you said nasty things about President Trump and that you wished him to be impeached? Because if you did, then we can't take anything that you said here uh, as being unbiased or uh, a straightforward analytical opinion. I see. Um, well, then. We may as well. Is this the end of the show now? Does Do we cue the music? Or? Yeah, we can, okay. yeah, on this show, that would cue the music. I'm just, I see <laughs> Representative Goodlatte and some of his colleagues in the House um, as my examples as a moderator. And what I'm trying to do is raise my game 
I see. To the level of them, to Trey Gowdy, some of these others. Right. Um, yeah, sorry, no, sorry. Uh, Rosa, what, what, what do you think of the NATO summit? Oh, I love the NATO summit. It's always a highlight of my year. Um, no, I, I, you know, I'm unlike Julie. I'm, I'm not a, as much of a NATO watcher. Um, but I think it's the NATO thing that, nerd, yeah, NATO the nerd. Well, then we like nerds around here. Um, but the thing that, uh, you know, I, I mean, I, Julie says that even her low expectations, um, it was worse than she thought. I guess, I guess. As you know, I I always expect global apocalypse. So any any day that the world doesn't disappear in a uh, you know ball of fire is a good day for me. Um, so in that sense, I thought I actually thought it could have been even worse. Um, you know, he he at least he made contradictory noises about NATO as opposed to unremittingly negative noises. You know that that he did come out saying, well, yes, I believe in NATO, I support NATO. Now, admittedly, that was somewhat undermined by saying rather ambiguously that if uh, other states don't meet their, what he seems to regard uh, uh, as their binding 2% commitment, which he seems to misunderstand in a wide range of ways, um, you know, by what, January or something, rather soon, uh, that you know, he'll just have to, there's some dispute about his actual words, but he seems to have said something like, I'll go my own way, or I'll do my own thing, which could be interpreted as we're out of here, we're out of this alliance. So who knows, that's not good. To me, the really mind-blowing piece um, wasn't even the, the the NATO stuff, it was his comments about Russia at this at this press conference, where he seemed to be suggesting that it's a whole lot easier to deal with Russia than it is with any of our allies. And furthermore, when pushed on the issue of, you know, Russian electoral interference, he, he just shrugged it off, which is what he's done in the past and, and sort of said, well, you know, what am I, what are you going to do? What am I going to say to him? I could say, did you do this? And don't do it again. If he does it, it's just one of those things. He didn't seem terribly concerned about it. Uh, and, and it's obviously, you know, needless to say, it's a very stark contrast. Our, our friends, our longstanding allies, you know, they don't quite come up to snuff in some way that, that he is defined and, and he's full of threats and bellicosity. The Russians, the longstanding adversary, can interfere in our elections and he just shrugs and says, oh, well, you know, it's just one of those things. It happens. I wonder why that could be. I wonder what it is about their interference in the election that could make him so comfortable with it. Indeed. Ed, tell me. Hello. Hello. <laughs> what, 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 what were you? What were your reactions to this omni shambolic farce? Um, it was uh, it, it was roughly in line, I think, with what with what I expected. You know, he um, he dissed um, the Europeans, um, particularly the Germans. He was. Um, extremely, you know, uh, rude in public to Merkel, but apparently, as is often the case, emollient um, behind the scenes when the microphones were off. Um, he tends to be aggressive when um, the people towards whom he's being aggressive are not within earshot. So, you know, he tends to tweet on the plane, as he did after the G7 summit. I think the real um, uh, measure of whether this NATO summit wasn't a catastrophe or was, um, will come from the Helsinki meeting on Monday with Putin. Um, and what we can glean from the sort of one-to-one -one they're going to have before the official bilateral summit. Uh, if, you know, Trump, in terms of actions, um, inches towards, and words, um, um, uh, sort of um, foretelling action, um, inches towards, you know, tr uh, Putin's position on Crimea, hints at a dilution of sanctions, um, and on the Ukraine, then uh, then that that will be a, you know a far more uh, important measure for the future of NATO than whatever the mood music's been in Brussels over the last um, couple of days. And I, I, I you know and I guess we won't know um, exactly what he and Putin have agreed because you know the real talk will happen in private without without aids. So let's break this down into a couple of its component parts. And Julie, let me start with maybe the nerdiest part of the thing, but it's where Trump decided to start off, which was at his breakfast meeting um, with NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Uh, he started talking about how the Germans were under the control of the Russians, 
because they were going to get 60 to 70 percent of their gas from the Russians, and that if they were building the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, that meant they were going to pay billions to the Russians, and therefore, why should we have to spend billions to protect them from the Russians? Um, rather than my breaking down every lie that was in that, maybe you should. <laughs> well, uh, so Germany generally has three strikes against it. So it's got the defense spending debate or argument where Trump claims that they're spending too little on defense. And it's true, they're not meeting the 2% target. And to date, Merkel has said that she can really only get to 1.5 when the deadline hits in 2024. That's the target. So that's argument one. Second argument against Germany is, is all tied to the trade imbalance and how German companies, the German government ripping us off. Uh, that, of course, was the root in part of the steel and aluminum tariffs that the Trump that Trump decided to move forward with. And then the last bit that he has, this argument against Germany just in general, is tied to the decision in Germany to move forward with the construction of this pipeline from Russia Nord Stream 2. Uh, and on that point, I have to say, I'm not a big fan of Nord Stream 2 myself um, for lots of geostrategic reasons that uh, are geopolitical reasons that Merkel has only recently come to acknowledge kind of what kind of message it sends both to Russia and countries like Ukraine and others in Central and Eastern Europe and how it isolates those countries and puts them in an even more precarious position than they're already in. Um, but what Trump wanted to do is create a new narrative, and that is that instead of the accusations about him personally being controlled by Russia or having these ties and links to Russia or this bizarre admiration for Putin personally and his leadership style, somehow he wanted to just go with the transference plan and make the whole argument about Russia and Merkel somehow being held captive by the Russians, um, which is not true. I mean, obviously, Germany gets energy from Russia and will get more energy from Russia if this thing goes forward. But uh, the Germans have also worked very hard in recent years to diversify their energy sources, and they've put a big bet on things like renewables. And so this argument just came out of the blue, and I think it took her by surprise. She expected, Merkel expected to just be the punching bag at the summit. Every German official you talk to, they expected to walk in and be called out time and time again, but not in this way. And so this was a new twist on his just scathing critiques of Germany. I mean, Germany comes up, he can be meeting with the prime minister or the president of any country in Europe, and somehow Germany always comes uh, up. And no one can quite explain whether this is tied to Merkel personally, his own German heritage, which he seemed to forget today, kind of how that worked, um, or just he doesn't like that they're a strong, powerful country in Europe. I have no idea. The refugee policy that Merkel has picked, but this is turning into don't, don't just forget she's a woman. She's don't a woman. Yeah. Don't Obama liked her. Yeah. They kicked out his whoremongering grandfather. Yeah, there you go. I don't, I don't know. It's just, it really is striking. I mean, for a while, Sweden was getting a lot of it as well, but that's all kind of washed away. It's pretty much Germany all the time. And the fact that he has these kind of three arguments in his head, they're dropping the ball on defense spending, our trade relationship is horrible, the U.S. is getting ripped off, and she's moving ahead with this godforsaken pipeline, you know, is just for him the trifecta. It's an and I don't think it's going to change. And yet it's weird because he'll be in press conferences with her, you know, after their bilateral meeting at the summit. There was this kind of short attempt, brief attempt to say, oh, yeah, things aren't that bad between Germany and the U.S. So I, I don't know. I mean, Merkel just at this point, I think she just ignores him and grins. Well, at I, I have a question for you, Julie, about that. And, and Ed, I suppose for you as well, I, you know. I sort of don't get why that why she and and most of the others are being so muted in their reaction to Trump. What's the calculation that they're making? Yeah, let me let me add to that question. Stoltenberg feels it's his obligation to smooth it all over. 
Yeah. And so and and you know, to me, that's like a miscalculation because when when it gets smoothed over, Trump thinks he's victorious and it encourages him to do it again. But maybe Julie then Ed can respond. Well, I mean, that that's the dilemma they're all facing right now. I mean, they feel like at times Merkel has had these kind of very cryptic attempts to push back on Trump. You'll remember after he was elected, she kind of sent this little message to the United States about the importance of the West adhering to its core values and kind of a gentle reminder to Donald Trump about the values we share, human rights, respect for uh, international law, blah, blah, blah rule of law. Um, and he didn't obviously take that well. Fox News didn't take that well. It kind of blew up in her face, um, as did her comments while she was campaigning and this German beer tent saying, you know, in a pretty honest way, we can't really rely on the United States as much anymore. It was In my eyes, it was more of a message to the German public of, hey, you know, let's not count on the U.S. for our security much longer. Uh, we got to pull our socks up. Um, but instead, Trump and his team and Fox News kind of took it as a dig, um, and that blew up too. So everybody's kind of figuring out what their approach. Macron tried the wave of flattery approach, can kind of understand now that that got him nowhere. He didn't save the Iran nuclear deal. Um, Merkel has kind of dipped her toe into a slightly stiffer spine position and got smacked down Ooh, for that's it. that's a terrible so, metaphor. Sorry, sorry. Uh, horrible, horrible. Um, I'll I'll switch. I'll switch. But you know what I mean? I mean, she's she's tried to kind of go uh, be a little bit more assertive in standing up to him and in, in a pretty benign way in my mind, but still didn't pan out. So I think, honestly, many of the European leaders and some of the folks I've talked to in the last 24 hours are really grappling with the nature of the challenge. You know, do we take him on? Or do we just let this go, let him play the reality TV show each and every time we put up with it, we smile nice and and just ignore it? Um, but one foreign minister wrote me today and said, I'm tired of lavishing sick praise on your president. And um, I don't know how much longer they're going to go along with it. I don't know. Ed may have a, a better view on how, what How is Ed supposed to respond to that? When you say, well, at least one foreign minister wrote to me today. <laughs> yeah, which foreign minister? Talk to Any six. foreign ministers yeah. write to you today, Ed? I'm sure. <laughs> I don't have a doubt about it. Are you kidding? It's probably, you know, even more presidents. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't have... Um, I don't have an answer to this riddle because, you know, the American president, even Trump, you know, um, has to be respected if, if you respect power and, and what an, uh, an irate American president is capable of doing to you. Um, and, you know, Trump, Trump is unique in that regard. And so I understand uh, the flattery approach. Um, but at the same time, completely agree with Julie that it's, you know, it's got it's got the likes of Macron and Merkel nowhere. Um, May is a quite interesting um, figure in this regard. She was, as is always the sort of um, desperate bit of, of a British prime minister, the first to be received by Trump at the White House, the first foreign leader about five day, days after his inauguration, held his hand pretty much stroked his hand um, and, uh, you know, has, has been um, dissed quite consistently um, by Trump. I mean, he's, you know, uh, criticized her handling of terrorism. He has uh, retweeted far right, um, there's the group called Britain First, um, anti-immigrant fake news kind of um, groups. He's done almost as much to try and destabilize the very wobbly May government as he has the Merkel, the wobbly, equally wobbly um, Merkel coalition. And yet, you know, if you judge May by her actions, this is pretty much the one area um, where I, I think she's shown a little bit of steel and that, you know, she, she, there was no daylight between her and European leaders on uh, the Iran nuclear deal, their response to uh, Trump's withdrawal from it. There was no daylight on sticking to the Paris um, Accord on climate change. Tough response on Russia. She um, apparently extracted a promise from Trump for what it's worth that he would 
um, that he would raise the Novichok killings with Putin in Helsinki. Um, so, you know, I don't really know what, what, what the correct answer is on the f- sort of flattery spectrum, but I would, would just add one other thing. You know, Trump today was exulting about what a nice note he got from Kim Jong-un. And if you look at the contents of the letter that Kim Jong-un sent, they're completely content-free. It's just a few sort of diplomatic pleasantries. And we all know, the whole world knows, that Kim Jong-un has no intention of sticking to the deal that he and Trump agreed in Singapore, that Trump misdescribes as a contract. And yet there is Trump grasping at straws. What a wonderful note he got from Kim Jong-un. I think the only way you're really going to spark his admiration is by being a strong man. And uh, Europe should neither want to nor is capable of producing strong men at this point, or women. Well, one one possibility, uh, given events of the week, is don't you think Trump should have been going not to meet with Theresa May, but with the leader of Croatia at this moment? Uh, I will. I will ignore that remark. I, I, will, <laughs> I, will, I will rise David. above it. I will. That rise was really above. mean. I'm a professional. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yes. I know. I know. I know you are. Um, so, Rosa, you know, one of the other things that Trump said during this, uh, uh, his exchanges, apparently, was that at the Singapore summit, he told Jack Nicholas there were. 6,000 photographers, and there's only 1,000 photographers uh, at the Academy Awards. This was something he shared with everyone at the dinner. And there was a bigger crowd, a much bigger crowd than anyone has ever had before, ever, anywhere. Right. So I was wondering, what do you think the international consequences of of having a giant douchebag as president Well, when you put it like that, David, um, <laughs> I guess I'm going to say that there are really not a lot of good consequences of having a giant douchebag as president of the United States, um, um, except that, you know, I, I, I perpetually throw out the, you know, optimistic hope that the fact that the U.S. is no longer even bothering to hide the fact that we have a giant douchebag and that our politics are douchey and so forth will inspire other nations to stand up and take on a leadership role. Unfortunately, the only nations so far who seem to be rising to that challenge are, are you know, <laughs> Russia, China, North Korea, et cetera. Sadly, our, our allies uh, seem to be, as we've been discussing, in, in a state of substantial disarray and large, largely spinelessness, notwithstanding Ed's valiant defense. Um, so it's it's not good. On the other hand, the good news today is that scientists have detected neutrinos from a distant galaxy, and that is very interesting to us all and reminds us that we are but a tiny, tiny little little fragment of matter in a vast and mysterious universe. So it, it all kind of works out in the end. Right, even if Trump is a somewhat larger fragment of matter than he ought to be, or anyway, one of the right. other things a, a about a douchebag particle floating. Yeah, it's, it's a new, it's a douchetrino, um, or a uh, ghost well, particle. Yeah, ghost. Well, there's some play on quark here, but I'm not going to get there. But Julie, <laughs> just sticking with the giant douchebag question, uh, one of the things that's quite interesting about this NATO summit that we are sort of accepting, but it actually is, is, is kind of extraordinary, is that the day before the summit, the Senate voted 97 to two to say, we really believe in NATO, uh, clearly trying to send a message, don't listen to the man behind the curtain or in front of the curtain. Then Pompeo said, we really believe in NATO. And Mattis said, we really believe in NATO. And while Trump was sitting there at this breakfast saying all this awful stuff about Germany, you could see his staff, including Kay Bailey Hutchison, I mean, his team, Kay Bailey Hutchison, Pompeo, and chief of staff, um, John Weeping, Hill, gnashing their teeth, weeping, tearing gnashing. their hair, rending no, their garments. No, that was just because of the breakfast. Don't forget, guys. <laughs> oh, right, That's right. true. Sarah, Sarah Ellie wanted bacon, and they did <laughs> There serve. was no bacon and eggs. Yeah. So, right, yeah. and that had there been bacon and eggs, they would have vigorously agreed with him. That's but right. But it does, it, it does and, and subsequent to all of this, uh, ailing Senator John McCain took it upon himself to send out a text saying, I'm sorry the president behaved this way. We Americans don't actually believe what he says. Uh, it's kind of interesting that 
literally the entire body politic is trying to distance himself itself from this giant douchebag. Yeah, and I think that was effective last year. I think we got through 2017 because we had people like Mattis, like John McCain, and many others on the Hill and folks across Washington that would say all the right things and make allies believe that the rest of America remain committed to the alliance and all of the other institutions that we've created with our European friends. Um and now in 2018, it just doesn't work anymore. I mean, I've heard a few Europeans uh, note their appreciation of what the Senate did, um, and it did not go unnoticed. I mean, it, it certainly captured a few headlines, but it's not enough to counter the fact that we have a president who continues to refuse to grasp how defense spending works, who gets up and lies about the content of actual meetings with allies, and who storms out, as he did at the G7, and then doesn't end up signing the communique at the end of the day. So they just... They're tired of the yin-yang of, oh, when we sit down with Madison Pompeo, we hear all the right things and we feel better about the world. And then, you know, we look at our Twitter feed or the news and, you know, we shake our heads in disbelief. And it's just, you can, you can only do that for so long. Mattis can only do so much reassuring. And, um, I, I just wonder, I know Mattis is going to do some traveling, I think, right after these engagements and make his way around Europe. And I can imagine how the conversation is going to go. You know, he's going to pretend like we had a normal summit and he's going to be probably talking already about the next summit and all the great work we do together. And I think the allies are just going to sit back in their chair and, you know, ask, who are you kidding? You know, this was an incredibly disruptive event. Um, we don't just turn a blind eye and ignore the fact that your president got up and lied about events that, you know, happened over the last two days. So it's, yeah, 2017, that was a great game plan. Um, and Congress does have a role to play also in laying hands on allies and trying to convince them that things are going to be okay, that we're going to get through this. But, you know, as each year ticks by, I'm sure by the time we hit 2020, it's it's not even going to be worth it anymore, you know, to be have Congress issuing alternative statements or something that counters what the president says. I mean, I think also the folks who are members of the administration and round, run around Europe telling everybody, you know, don't take him, take him seriously, not literally, and ignore the treats, uh, uh, tweets, just look at the policies. Their two standard lines, again, got them through year one. Those lines are not going to get us through the next couple of years. And I think that's how many on this side of the Atlantic feel, and certainly how many of our allies feel at this point. They're just not, they're not buying it. So this brings me to another question, Rosa, then I want to turn with one to Ed. But um, it's something we've turned to periodically in the course of Deep State Radio, and it, it, it has to do with serving with and for somebody like Trump. Somebody like Mattis, people periodically will say, ought to resign because of, you know, this thing that Trump said or talking about ending these, you know, exercises or talking about pulling troops out of someplace or whatever, things that are sort of contrary to to policy or good sense. Uh, and then people say, well, you know, Mattis really ought to stay in there. We, we understand he wants to stay in there because, you know, he thinks he might be the last firewall against, you know, starting a war. But as, as I heard somebody say that yesterday, it struck me, you know, we don't actually launch that many wars. And most of the damage done by countries is not done in wartime, it's done in peacetime. And continuing to support a president who attacks your most important allies, attacks the institutions, lies about the institutions, embraces your enemies day in and day out, despite all the evidence against his views, despite his intelligence community lined up against his views, despite plenty of evidence that he may have actually embraced the cooperation of a foreign power and putting him in office suggests that maybe the time has come that these people ought not to serve, that duty suggests uh, actually resisting 
rather than being there waiting to prevent a nuclear war. And I'm wondering if your views on this have evolved. Well, I think it's tough. I I mean, I I don't know. And the problem is is that none of us really knows what exactly is happening behind the scenes, right? I mean, I think that the the dilemma that any moderately sane, moderately principled person who finds themselves in this administration faces is is as you say, it's it's sort of if I, if if I recognize that this guy is a loon, um, you know, do I knew, do more good by staying in and attempting to moderate the lunacy or by leaving and publicly denouncing the lunacy? Um, you know, and and it's really hard to know. I mean, here are two hypothetical scenarios, right? Hypothetical scenario one, Trump was actually even closer than any of us feared to to actually starting war. And I don't I don't think it's impossible that that was the case um, in North Korea or with Iran or, you know, that, that I don't think it's at all impossible. Um, and, you know, under hypothetical scenario one, maybe the reason that we're no longer in such a bellicose moment is because Mattis or others did manage to talk him down. And if they hadn't been there, uh, really bad things would be happening. Um, if, if that's the case, then I'm really glad they're there and I want them to stay. Um, and the relatively small price of, you know, whatever minimal added legitimacy they give him at this point is, is worth it because they're, they're staving off complete catastrophe of one sort or another. You know, the other hypothetical scenario is that there really was no catastrophe or their influence is, is close to non-existent in any case, and that all they're doing is they're creating a you know window dressing with a little facade of legitimacy. Um, and in that case, it is tarnishing, it is and will tarnish their own reputations uh, for the rest of their lives and, and in the, the view of history. And they should leave and they they should not only leave, they should certainly not leave quietly with a sort of polite, it's been an honor to serve, but now I have to get busy, you know, chatting with my grandchildren or uh, cultivating my garden. But instead, they should leave making a lot of noise to the effect of I can't stay in this administration any longer. And and I, I don't know. I mean, my fear is that particularly in light of reports and, and events that suggest that Mattis's influence, although it was once quite strong, has been waning, and he's been sidelined more and more. Trump is, as Trump does, uh, uh, with everyone apparently, he's tiring of him. You know, the the bloom is off the rose. Uh, my my sense is that we are we are certainly closer to scenario two than we were a year ago. Uh, are we close enough that Mattis should go? I, I don't know. Well, Ed, this brings me to the follow-up question, which is, what what is the behavior of a good ally in defending an alliance where the leader of the alliance seems to be seeking to undermine the alliance and ally himself with the principal enemy of the alliance? Yeah, I mean, so again, I recognize that that Theresa May in the context of the UK, that Merkel in the context of Germany, that that all of these folks are facing their own and quite varied domestic pressures uh, and problems at the moment that are probably influencing their thinking much more than uh, the international issues are influencing their thinking. Um, but but certainly, I wish that our allies uh, were 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 more willing to be forthright and say, Hey, um, you know, it looks like the U.S. isn't really taking seriously its role in NATO. I guess we'll be waiting for 2021 and hoping somebody else comes. This guy is, you know, this guy is a danger. I wish that they were more willing to speak the truth. Ed, what do you think? Well, I, I, you know, there there are certain sort of potential upsides to this. Um, one of which is that. Trump does panic Europe and Canada and others um, sufficiently that they that they sort of um, bind themselves closer into a, an idea of what the West should be with or without America and and, and America's you know temporary absence under Trump uh, hopefully temporary absence uh, if it forces um, more European unity um, because it scares them. Um, then that that could be, you know, a positive unintended consequence in terms of, you know, whether the likes of Jim Mattis should resign and resign very publicly because they can no longer in good conscience 
serve um, such a volatile and irresponsible president. Um, it, I, I would still tend to, you know, hope that he would stay in that role. Just imagine, you know, a few weeks, months from now, um, when Trump, you know, can no longer deny that Kim Jong-un is just taking him for a ride. Um, and he announces, OK, we're now going to restore the suspended U.S.-South Korea joint military exercises. Um, we're going to do it with all kinds of um, bells and whistles and full sort of nuclear capabilities. Uh, uh, the the volatility, uh, the sort of hair trigger nature of that kind of scenario, um, which is not that hypothetical, it's, it's very easy to imagine, you know, would be very differently handled if you had, say, Senator Cotton as defense secretary or, God forbid, you know, somebody like Rudy Giuliani. Um, as opposed to Jim Mattis still there, because the just the the person who's control in control of the levers, um, the chain of command, who has the trust of, of the generals and and so forth, you know, is still a hugely important figure in a crisis. And you know, I would want that person, for the sake of of all of our ability to sleep at night, to be somebody like Jim Mattis. Um, well, yeah, except he's not atop the chain of command. Uh, and true, true, but but uh, he's he's atop the stru of the structure of of the three armed forces, which you know is a critical, a critical um, uh, lever in this situation. Okay, so Julie, you know, periodically in Washington, you know, their columns, you you see things like who had the best week in Washington, and this week isn't over yet. But I'm thinking I would nominate Vladimir Putin because. Not only did the president of the United States go to a NATO summit, spread discord, deepen divisions, um, uh, discredit himself, um, and uh, uh, you know make the future viability of NATO a question that is even being considered, which you know in the past seventy-five years hasn't or 70-ish years, hasn't really been an open question. Meanwhile, simultaneously in Washington, D.C., the majority party in the House of Representatives is conducting hearings attacking law enforcement for looking into Russian investigations, in, in, into Russian meddling in the election. The president is minimizing Russian meddling in the election. The president is holding out the possibility of canceling um, military exercises in the Baltics, working closely with the Russians on things like Syria. Um, this, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I suppose, you know, you know, Vladimir Putin has had other big weeks in his life, you know, getting elected president or his bar mitzvah or whatever was big in his life. But th this, by the way, folks, he's, he didn't have a bar mitzvah. I just, I just want to, I was wondering if you knew something we didn't. Yeah, yeah no, I want to want to clarify that to all of our um, uh, listeners. Uh, anyway, uh, what, what do you think? I mean, could, could, is it possible this is the best week Vladimir Putin's had um, in 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 a long, long time? Yeah, you make a pretty convincing case. I mean, I, I think Putin's probably rubbing his eyes in disbelief. I mean, it, it's hard to imagine how it gets much better. I think it will get better once this meeting happens. Maybe it's after the 16th that then things really kick into gear and uh, then he can rejoice. Because I sense that Trump is going to do something. He's going to give Putin something that's going to make us all cringe and make like, Putin like, rejoice. Like, Either like, recognize, yeah. he could recognize Crimea. We could launch new counterterrorism cooperation in Syria that just means that we give up cooperation with the Kurds. We could agree to halt or he could agree to halt any future rounds of NATO enlargement. He could promise a partial lifting of sanctions or a full lifting of sanctions over what happened in Ukraine in 2014. I mean, the list is pretty long. And then, as you noted, there's the military exercises. Any of those could be called off in the future. I mean, who knows? And then what we know will happen is 
Trump will come out and say, hey, guys, I asked him again. Guess what? He said he didn't do it. Um, So there was no election meddling, despite the fact that members of Trump's own team claim that it did happen, as well as the entire intelligence community. Um, So, yeah, it's it's a pretty banner week um, for Putin. It's hard to think of how it gets much better. And the icing on the cake is Trump just mentioning in passing, Rosa said it was a little cryptic. The quote is, I don't know what the exact quote was at the end of the day, but just hinting that the United States could leave the NATO alliance or choose to go it alone, just even if that wasn't even a remote possibility, just to have a U.S. president lay that out there as a possibility sometime in the future if Europeans don't deliver. I mean, that's just tailor-made for Putin. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. And just on the prior question, I have to say on whether or not you really hope for the sane members of the administration to hit the road and resign in protest. I, I think earlier, up until a few weeks ago, I was always with Ed in hoping that people stick around, that Madison company would be there as long as they could possibly hang on until they were fired by tweet or whatever it might be. Um, but I have to say what made me crack, um, is, is the separated families issue. And when that hit, when the news broke that this was the policy of the administration, and we heard about these children possibly permanently separated from their parents forever. Um, I think I just, for me, I, in the back of my mind, I thought I want everyone to walk out. I want mass resignations. I was hoping half of DHS would walk out the door, even if it's at the assistant secretary, undersecretary level. I wanted people signing letters. I wanted letters sent to Pompeo. I I didn't even care if it was Mattis because I feel like by having some of these people there, it gives Congress an out. It gives some Americans an out to make it feel like a normal administration. I know it's scary to think about Sean Hannity being, you know, Secretary of Defense or Tom Cotton <laughs> or whoever, but maybe that's what we need to shake Congress and wake them up and get them to understand how crazy this all is and to start pushing back. Because with Mattis there, And now with Pompeo, I think so many members of Congress, you know, are shrugging problem. What problem? You know, there's no problem. And maybe that's a couple of really high profile resignations, somebody they respect like Mattis walking out the door in a very public way. I understand we'd all be rolling the dice there, but things are so dark. I've kind of started to change, you know, in terms of my perspective. I really was grateful Mattis was there for so long, but I was kind of hoping for a high profile resignation once the separated families issues hit. Now, maybe because he signed the executive order, maybe somebody was even entertaining it. There were rumors that a number of people at DHS were considering walking out. Um, who knows if there's there was any truth to that. Um, but maybe they all felt like, okay, once Trump said, he won't separate families anymore, everything, the genie's back in the bottle. But I don't know. That's kind of my mindset these days. It's a little bit scary to go there, but I don't know. Desperate times call for desperate measures. I I don't know. Maybe if you do dramatic. You were were once uh, in the Department of Defense. What what do you think of Secretary Hannity? (laughs) You know, I do think, David, one thing that crosses my mind uh, listening to to Julie and 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 thinking about this whole discussion. Um, one thing I do worry about is um, th- that that the less non-crazy people are missing an opportunity and, and and in particular, I think Democrats are probably missing an opportunity to do something that is important and overdue um, with I mean so so, Take a step back. Here, here's the here's the potential silver lining to the awfulness of having a douchebag as president, et cetera. Um, is that every time Trump acts like, well, you know, why shouldn't we leave NATO? Maybe we should, why shouldn't we recognize Crimea? Um, it's it's both an opportunity and a a challenge to the majority of people in the foreign policy community to to find more compelling ways to articulate why that would not be a good idea, you know? 
And I think that we are not rising to that challenge or taking that opportunity by and large, you know, that, that I think that the 2016 election, among other things, I mean, there, and there were obviously all kinds of other things going on, including Russian interference, but, but one of the messages, one of the takeaways to me from that election was that uh, it, it's true, foreign policy elites have not done a very good job explaining to the average American why any of this stuff that we completely take for granted matters. And to some extent, I think that's that's been a bipartisan feeling to the extent that you can say there's been a, a substantial bipartisan foreign policy consensus on these issues. But obviously, it has you know hurt Democrats much more, which is why I say this is a special challenge for Democrats. And I, I think that by and large, we, we that community has been responding to Trump by falling back on the same old talking points you know, saying, wait, but, 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 but NATO is important, but alliance is important, but, 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 but without actually doing the extra work to say, clearly just saying that is not really very powerful to a lot of people. You know, it's just repeating the same talking points we've been using for, for years, for decades in many cases. And let's try to think, are there better, fresher, more vivid, more effective ways to explain this, to talk about this, you know, are we, are there any situations in which we are clinging to assumptions that are outdated, uh, you know, that, 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 that there are ways in which we, we could and should use this as a healthy opportunity uh, to sort of force ourselves to rethink how we talk about this and indeed what we think. And I'm not, I don't, I don't see, I don't see the foreign policy community and particularly the democratic foreign policy community rising to that challenge much at all yet, at least. We've just got a couple of minutes left, but Ed, I'd be interested in what you think about that, and then Julie, too. Can I just read something that's come across uh, my desk? This is the pool report from Trump's arrival at Blenheim Palace, the Churchill family home, where he's being hosted by May. Uh, as a form of um, eating my words about what I said about May, at the end of the truly breathtaking bagpipe version of amazing grace. Oh. The, su the sun broke through the clouds and shone brightly on the plaza in front of Blenheim. Trump gesticulated with his arms and turned to say something to May as the music ended. And he began to applaud. Then the other three, and then the crowd of guests assembled, all joined in. The Trumps and the Mays then turned and walked up the steps again. Sorry, I'm just about to barf. Um, but uh, I thought I thought I'd just give you an update and say I I I I I really do I do begin to react viscerally to this kind of stuff. What did you ask me? <laughs> well, well, thank you for listening, Ed. And, yeah, thank you. Uh, what, what what I what I what I asked you was to pick up on what Rosa said, which was essentially this is all the fault of Democratic nerds. What's the fault of Democrats? That's not exactly what I said. <laughs> I, I've, go, I've, go, go on. What okay. are you blaming on Democratic nerds, Rosa? I didn't blame anything on Democratic nerds, Ed. I, I, I was just, I was just lamenting that Trump's uh, contemptuous dismissal of every foreign policy verity uh, that both right. Democrats in right. particular have held dear um, should be an incitement to to those groups among other things, to not just repeat the same talking points we've I been fully doing agree. for years. I fully agree. And if I could sort of just mention on that subject, when people say in defense of NATO here or on cable news, et cetera, when they say, look, we, America, are being harmed more than anybody else by this, that's just wrong. And I think people um, out there in the general public uh, in, in, intuit that that's wrong, that actually Europe needs America more than America needs Europe. Um, and Trump's critics have got to be more realistic about how they criticize Trump uh, and, and what people hear. Um, I, Julia, I take all this as direct criticism of you, and I want to give you a chance to. <laughs> it's all my fault. Um, well, I think Rosa has a really good point to make. I mean, it is it it and it this is a challenge for all of us um, uh, on the right, on the left, that folks that 
that want to push back against many of the things that the president's saying these days. Um, you can't just get trapped in defending the status quo. It doesn't work. We can't stand up and say, well, this isn't the way we've, uh, we don't, we never done it this way. And uh, that's just the way it's always been. And NATO's important. Well, I mean, Rose is right. You do have to step back and unpack it and say, why? Why is the NATO alliance important these days in this threat environment? It was created some 70 plus years ago. Um, and it is an opportunity. I mean, he's doing a tremendous amount of damage, but it is an opportunity for the foreign policy elites, as we're called uh, here in D.C., to rethink how we talk about these things. And I have been spending a lot of time outside of Washington meeting with people, particularly Trump supporters, independents and folks on the left, too, uh, to have conversations about foreign policy. And it has opened up my mind a little bit in the sense that you can't just show up and, well, first of all, you can't show up and say, we're here from Washington, we're here to help. Um, then the door gets slammed in your face. But you also can't show up and say, well, just because, you know, or trust me, it matters. You really have to sit down and have, you have to listen first and foremost, and you can't lecture, but to the extent that you get an occasional chance to make your case, um, you know, you've got to be more thoughtful than we've been in the past. And it's a challenge. It's not easy. It's easier to defend the status quo and say, we've always done it this way. Allies matter, period. Um, but to unpack that and explain specifically why allies matter, how does a, an alliance like NATO help the United States? It's a good thing to do. Uh, it still doesn't make me feel so great about what's happening right now in the United States. But Rosa's right in the sense that this is an opportunity. And um, I hope many of us here, the nerds across this city, uh, like all of us on this line um, and beyond, will will take on that challenge. Well, here, here. That's a good place to end with Rosa being right, which is usually the case, uh, but also with a call to action from all of the nerds. Uh, it's not all on your heads. I was just uh, kidding a moment ago. Uh, clearly, Trump has been harboring some fairly deranged views on these subjects since 1987, at least. And if you haven't read Jonathan Chait's interesting article in The New Yorker on the history of Trump and Russia, you really should. Um, but he has been harboring some nationalistic thoughts. And there's a lot of people out there who make their foreign policy um, uh, decisions not based on facts or white papers or thoughtful arguments. Uh, and they are beyond reaching. Uh, having said that, it's clear that the case um, uh, for NATO could be made better, the case for uh, uh, our future international involvement and a whole host of things could be made better. Uh, and that's the challenge, to make it in a way that's not only uh, 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 intellectually uh, uh, supportable and makes sense as good policy, but that also resonates with people in the same way that some of this lunacy resonates with people. In any event, that's it for us this week. Uh, join us again next week as we'll our first podcast will be recorded on the uh, just after Trump finishes up with Putin. So that should be loads of fun. Um, and uh, and and we look forward to joining you then. Uh, thanks to all of you out there, Deep State Radio nerds, and to Julie, and to Rosa, and to Ed. Bye bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.